0: Well, good morning. Good morning. I pray that you are having a good weekend. We are in Daniel chapter 7 this morning. We're concluding an eight-part series entitled Undaunted. We walk through Daniel 1 through 7. Today we'll conclude with a vision given to Daniel. Next week we'll dive into Mark. We'll prepare for the Easter season looking at selected chapters from Mark 14, chapter 14 through 16. Daniel 7 verse 1. It's on page 744 if you have a a pew Bible, a church Bible. Let's read. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Prior to this dream, the ones receiving the dreams and visions are the kings of Babylon and Medo-Persia. Daniel serves as an interpreter. Now Daniel will receive a vision, and he will need interpretation. What's happening in his life? Why would Daniel need to receive a vision from the Lord? Well, just to set the context a bit, Nebuchadnezzar, he died in 562 BC after a 44-year reign, a long reign, a glorious reign. And Daniel had a very significant role in his kingdom. Daniel receives this vision about 12 years after the death of Nebuchadnezzar, 11 years before the fall of Babylon. So he receives the vision in the year 550. What's happening in 550 BC? Daniel, he's been in Babylon for about 55 years, he's about 70 years of age. In 550, Nabonidus is ruling Babylon, but he decides to leave Babylon and go off to Arabia, and he leaves the city under the rulership, under the authority of his son, Belshazzar. So the vision comes in the first year of Belshazzar. The Medes and the Persians are already threatening this kingdom of Babylon. And Daniel, now being more on the margins of the kingdom, he's no longer close to the king. He must wonder what's happening. How will Babylon, under the idolatrous, arrogant, foolish Belshazzar, How will Babylon withstand the threat of the Medes and Persians? What will happen to Babylon should it fall? What will happen to him? What will happen to the people of Israel? Is God in control? Does God still have his hand on the history of the people of God? Can he remain undaunted? What will fill him with faith to face the future that awaits Babylon and the rest of the world? Daniel chapter 7 is an apocalyptic vision. Why apocalyptic? Well, apocalyptic literature, it comes, it's birthed in a context of an impending boom, doom, sorry. It's when it appears that all of history will come to an end. In the darkness of Babylon, people are suffering, they're losing hope. Questions about God's sovereignty arise in the hearts and minds of God's people. Is God still watching? Is it still worth it to be good and just? Is it worth it to do what is right? Is there a reason to remain faithful? The walk of righteousness is into the face of ever higher waves of opposition. And the waves appear to be relentless, unstoppable. They just keep coming. And so in this sea of life that's turbulent, that's overwhelming, where there's an ever-rising tide of injustice, where it seems that all that is good will be swallowed by the ocean of evil, is it worth it? To remain faithful. Apocalyptic times are stormy. High tide times. Earth destroying times. And Daniel chapter 7 is such a time. The first year of Belshazzar. Many would say that we live in apocalyptic times. If you go to a movie theater. You might see a rather weird comical version of this. And you know you see civilization being threatened by aliens and asteroids. And there are killer viruses and mutant creatures that attack us. Well that's not the vision of the scriptures. Maybe you watch a documentary that's a little more grounded, a little more sobering. A documentary that talks about the irreversible effects of global warming, about superstorms and flooding. Or maybe you watch the news and you hear about the threat of terrorism, the clash of civilizations. Or maybe you read about the emergence of the surveillance state, and you wonder if this is the end of privacy. It appears that people are monitoring our conversations, our choices, our movements. And so in this Babylon of today, where it appears that Babylon enters right into our homes, can we still stand up, be courageous, remain undaunted, and be faithful? Is there a vision to inspire us and guide us? Apocalypse, of course, comes from the Greek, and it just means revelation, unveiling. And so God, he allows us to look in on the unseen, the transcendent. He pulls back the curtain, opens a window for us into the present and the future. Daniel, in chapter 7, he'll say over and over again, I looked, I watched, I saw. And the main point of this vision is the following. The Most High God, who is sovereign over all things, will judge the beastly kingdoms of this earth that oppress His people. And following this judgment, God's redeemed people from all nations and languages will reign forevermore. That's the main point. So before we dive into the text, let's pray. Father, we thank You again for Your Word. Thank You for the opportunity to sit and study Your Word. Thank you that you have carried us through this week. Thank you that you are ever faithful. Thank you that you have your hand on our lives. And we just entrust ourselves into your your hands in this moment. We ask that you speak by your Holy Spirit. Jesus, be our teacher. Help us to understand this vision that you entrusted to Daniel. And Lord, I pray that your living and active word, your word that encourages, that inspires, that comforts, that brings hope, that strengthens, that builds up, that that living and active word would remain with your people, and that nothing that I say would stray from your word. May only your word remain, your true and living word. And so we pray that your name would be glorified, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, let's dive in. Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It had great iron teeth, it devoured in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Wow, how do we interpret that? Well, apocalyptic literature is metaphor-rich. There's mystery. A metaphor is just an image that's used to explain something. And these images are not to be taken literally, at least not completely. There are things that are true, that are accurate, but the image does not reveal all things. So we have to proceed with caution, with humility. Sometimes people, they, they look at the current configuration of European states and Middle Eastern states, and they start concocting uh, an end time scenario, and so they take two parts Daniel, five parts Revelation, a dash of Ezekiel, and bang, there you have it. The end of all things outlined for you in great detail. We have to walk with caution. We search for points of connection, because there are points of connection. We look at what links the metaphors. We don't insist on detailed interpretation, because sometimes things are just highly symbolic, like the numbers. We focus on what is really clear and straightforward. We focus on the gospel, the central truths, and the interpretation that God gives us. We rest in that because it's infallible. And we seek to read the vision within its original context. What did it mean for Daniel? What did it mean for the people of Israel in the 6th century BC? Okay, verse 2. Daniel sees four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea. The four winds come from all four corners of the earth. They're blowing at once. And so you have this image of a raging, agitated sea. What will Daniel have thought of? Well, in the ancient, East, ancient Near East, in the time of Daniel, the sea represented a rebellious, chaotic, destabilizing force, the place of those who do evil against God and his creation. Verse 3, four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. Beasts coming out of the sea. What would we expect to see? Well, if you were in South Africa, maybe you'd expect a great white shark to come out of the sea. Here in British Columbia, we might expect a killer whale to come out of the sea. Not a lion, a bear, and a leopard. But out of this chaotic force, then out of the sea come four abnormal beasts. They're grotesque. They're deformed. They're mutated. They're images of horror that go against God and his creation. They're evil agents of destruction. These four beasts are four earthly kings. How do we know that? Well, Daniel asks the angel, and the angel responds in verse 17. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. So the four beasts represent four kingdoms. And most commentators would link these four beasts with the image, the great statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw in chapter 2. Statue that statue, the head was of gold. Chests and arms of silver. Then bronze. Then legs of iron. And so there's a link. There's a connection between that vision of chapter 2 and chapter 7. Verse 4. The first beast, the lion, had eagle's wings. The lion, of course, symbolizes strength, right? Majesty. The eagle symbolizes speed and power. We know that this animal, this mix of animal and bird represents Babylon. How do we know that? Well, Jeremiah chapter 4, Jeremiah compares Babylon to a lion and an eagle. Jeremiah 4 verse 7, a lion has gone up from his thicket, A a destroyer of nations has set out. He has gone out from his place to make your land a waste. Your cities will be ruins without inhabitant. So Jeremiah is seeing Babylon as a lion that will attack Judah. Then if you scroll down to verse 13, behold, he comes up like clouds, his chariots like the whirlwind, his horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. So the lion with eagle's wings is Babylon, and those wings are plucked off. The lion is made to stand like a man, and a human's mind is given to it. It reminds us of Daniel chapter 4, right? Nebuchadnezzar, powerful powerful king, a glorious reign. He's the gold standard of kings, a pure monarchy. But then God humbled him, and he lived like a beast. And his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, chapter 4, verse 33. But when he looked up to the Most High, he stood up, and his reason returned to him. A human mind was given to him. Verse 5, the second beast, the bear. It also symbolizes power and ferocity. But the beast is a bit unbalanced. It's raised up on one side. This beast is the kingdom of Medo-Persia. The Persians were more powerful than the Medes, and they actually swallowed up the Medes. The bear has three ribs in its mouth, probably symbolizing the three nations that were conquered by Medo-Persia to establish its reign. Babylon, Egypt, and Lydia, which today would be Turkey. This empire of the Medo-Persians, it stretched from Egypt and the Aegean Sea in the west all the way to the Indus River on the east. A powerful kingdom that devoured much flesh. And then a third beast, verse 6, the leopard, another composite animal. The leopard, of course, is known for its stealth, for its speed, for its eyesight, for its hearing. With four wings, it turns into a jet. <laughs> Alexander the Great in... 334 BC crossed the Aegean Sea, entered into what today is Turkey, and within 10 years he had conquered all of the Medo Persian Empire. With tremendous velocity, he just raced across the empire. And then he died in 323 BC. And after his death, his kingdom was handed to four of his generals. And so that's why the leopard has the four heads. The third beast is the Greek Empire. And then a fourth beast, verse 7. The beast is like, unlike any animal on earth. It's terrible. It's hideous. Very, very powerful. It has iron teeth, bronze claws. It breaks in pieces and devours its victims. What's left over, it stamps with its feet. Reminds us of the legs of iron of the great statue, right? Daniel chapter 2, verse 40. Those legs of iron break to pieces and shatter all things. So the strange monster is the Roman Empire that conquered the known world from Europe all the way to India. It was said of Rome, they make a desert and they call it peace. It far surpassed the other kingdoms in power, in longevity, and influence. Strange monster has ten horns. Ten horns are ten kings. Again, how do we know that? Well, we're told in verse 24 that the ten horns represent ten kings that rule this kingdom. In the Old Testament... The horn often symbolizes pride, sometimes honor, often rebellion. And so here in this context, the ten horns are uncalled for pride. This beast lives out of a place of rebellion against God, does not submit to God. Will there be a confederation of kingdoms in the last days? Are there modern descendants of the Roman Empire? Throughout the history of the church, Men and women have tried to interpret what these ten horns mean. Some have linked them to the Caesars of the Roman Empire. The only problem is that there were 12 from Julius Caesar to Domitian. But in order to make it fit, to make their interpretation of the ten horns fit into the vision, they removed two Caesars that only reigned for a short period of time. Well, I don't think that's what the Lord asked us to do to make things fit. Sometimes people interpret the Ten Horns to be the European Union, just that there are a few too many nations that are a part of the European Union today, or the Club of Rome, or some form of world government. I think we need to walk with caution because the scriptures do not make it explicitly clear what the Ten Horns represent. What they do represent with certainty is uncalled for pride, pride on steroids. Among them comes up a little horn, different from the other ones. It uproots three of the horns, and is more powerful than the others. In chapter 7, more is said about this little horn. Verse 25, he shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. The little horn has the eyes of a man, boasts of great things. He'll speak words against the Most High, arrogant and blasphemous things verse 25 he'll wear out the saints verse 21 he wars against the saints verse 25 again he'll ponder changing the times and the law to do what only God can do the New Testament identifies this little horn with the Antichrist and you'll see this identification as you read through 2nd Thessalonians 1st John the book of Revelation if you just think about the four beasts you see this succession of evil kingdoms and it appears to be an endless cycle One kingdom succeeds another. Each kingdom more horrific than the one before it. And you would ask your question, if you just were to remain with the four beasts, is there any hope? Will there ever be justice? Will anything ever change? First point on your outline. In the midst of Babylon's darkness, the people of God know that. The kingdoms of man in their lust for power and dominance openly defy God, oppress his people, and challenge his created order. That's not very encouraging, is it? it doesn't, it's not really a hope-filled word, but it is true. And one of the wonderful things about Scripture, what God has revealed to us, is that God reveals truth. So sometimes we're living in Babylon and we wonder... Is it just me? Is, am I the only one that senses this or feels this or sees this? That there actually is a beast. That the kingdoms of man are oppressive. That they do defy God. That they do challenge his people. That they do challenge the created order. Is this true? And the scriptures would say, yes, it is true. And the truth of God always frees us. It liberates us. Daniel 7 tells us that the powers of the sage behave this way and the superpowers of our day continue to represent themselves by predatory animals. The Russian bear, the American eagle, the Chinese dragon, Canadian beaver. (laughs) doesn't quite fit the pattern, does it? No wonder we're not a world power. (laughs) Beavers are destructive. But the kingdoms of this earth, in their violence, they lust for more power. We can think of Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, Cyrus, Alexander the Great, Nero, Domitian, Hitler, Stalin, right into our day. This is the pattern of the beast. Revelation chapter 13, the four beasts become one horrific beast. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. And its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. But its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? So this composite beast is evil personified and it persecutes the saints. It oppresses God's people under the inspiration of the great dragon, Satan himself. And the people of God in Revelation chapter 6, they cry out, how long, O Lord? How long? Don't you see? Don't you care? How long? And then Daniel 7 verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. You see the contrast? Between the raging agitated sea and the four beasts that come out of the sea lusting for power and glory, And the Ancient of Days enters the scene and he just sits and he reigns. The Ancient of Days, the eternal God, the the great I am, the one who has always been, he enters the scene and he just sits and he reigns. He's not fidgeting, he's not anxious, he doesn't get up and pace around the throne, he just sits. His clothing was white as snow, uncompromising righteousness. The hair of his head like pure wool, wisdom. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him, symbols of justice and judgment and the power to execute judgment. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. Millions standing and worshipping, an innumerable multitude. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Judgment day has come. And those books are the records that God has of the deeds of man on earth. Verse 11. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So the second point. In the midst of Babylon's darkness, the people of God know. The eternal God, out of his wisdom, holiness, and power, judges the kingdoms of man and will judge on the last day. And that fills us with hope. The eternal God, out of his wisdom, holiness, and power, judges the kingdoms of man. So here at the center of the vision, we have the heavenly courtroom. The focus of the vision is not on the beasts. At the center of the vision, you have the throne room of God, and God sitting and reigning. The ancient of days, he has all wisdom to discern right from wrong. The purity to always choose rightly. The power to enforce his judgments. At the heart of the vision, you have God on the throne. And he's reigning. The cycle of the oppression of the beasts will be broken by his intervention. The beasts will receive justice. The little horn boasts, but swiftly is judged and thrown into the fire. And so in the midst of Babylon's darkness, the people of God know that the kingdoms of man although horrific in their season of power, are only for a time. The kingdoms of man, although horrific in their season, are only for a time. The vision reveals to us that, yes, we do live in a world of beasts. Yes, there are kingdoms that persecute the saints. And today we can think of Sudan and China and North Korea, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and many other kingdoms. And there are terrorists who blow up innocent people on buses and subways. And there are political and economic systems that use people like raw materials. And there are companies that treat their employees like commodities. The beast exists, exist. But ultimately, the challenge is not to discern the specifics of the beast, but to understand who God is, to keep our eyes focused on him. Daniel Daniel proclaims a message of hope. To those of us who are part of the people of God. It reminds God's people that the ancient of days is on the throne. And he will triumph. In the midst of Babylon's pessimism. This vision is a message of hope. The end is the end of human corruption. The end is the end of the oppression of God's people. The end is the end of evil itself. Amen. Amen. Rather than be terrified by the beast, we must remember the one who will deliver the final judgment. Mark chapter 10 verse 28, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. These are the words of Jesus. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And so whatever the cost, no matter the level of suffering or persecution, we must refuse to be assimilated into Babylon's ways. We are not here to live in fear of Babylon, but to keep our eyes focused on the king. We know how the story ends. Obedience is the only way forward. And so in light of this, are we ready for judgment day? Can we look forward to judgment day with hope and with joy? Or do we live in fear? If the books were open today, are we ready? Is there a way to be ready? Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so coming on the clouds of heaven, what does that mean? Well, in the psalm, Psalm 68, Psalm 104, this is a a figure with divine authority. Only God rides the clouds. One like a son of man. Who is it? This language that combines both the human and the divine. The son of man comes to the ancient of days. He's presented to the ancient of days. He's given authority, glory, dominion, so that all peoples might serve him. The word for serve there in verse 14, it means to worship. And that word in Daniel is only for worship god his rule is forever is far greater than any babylonian king he brings to an end all earthly kingdoms his kingdom is indestructible so point four in the midst of babylon's darkness the people of god know that the kingdom of the son of man will never end the kingdom of the son of man will never end daniel receives this vision at the beginning of chapter 7 and at the end he turns pale he's alarmed word actually says that he's anxious. Why? Well, he's just seen the abyss of human evil and he's entered into the throne room of God and any of us would be smitten by such a vision. What does he understand? Well, he understands that the golden head of chapter two is Babylon. He understands that the lion with eagle's wings is Babylon. He knows that other powerful, depraved kingdoms will arise. There will be a cycle of oppression broken by the intervention of God. He knows that God is sovereign, that the time of the oppression of the beastly kingdoms will be limited by God and beyond these times lies a heavenly court, the heavenly court, and that God will judge and he'll win the great battle. He knows that one like a son of man will be presented to God and he will reign forever. Is that enough? Does Daniel need to, need, need to know more does he need further revelation in order to persevere? In his day, in the first year of Belshazzar? No, he needs nothing more. He knows that God's on the throne, that he's reigning, that God has it in his hands. He knows how the story will end. And so Daniel can re- remain faithful in his day. The people of Israel in exile can live with hope. They can remain undaunted. What do we understand today? Well, we know that four kingdoms emerged and disappeared. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. The Son of Man, that small stone cut not by human hands, he came and inaugurated his kingdom. The Son of Man came to save us, came as a human being born of a virgin, born in a manger. He came blessing children, He came teaching with authority, forgiving sins, proclaiming the kingdom, healing the sick, eating with sinners. He was 100% man, 100% God. Grew up to bear a crown of thorns, went to the cross. Mark chapter 10, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so the son of man took the judgment for our sin. He was bruised for our transgressions. He was mauled for our iniquities. He faced the great beast, Satan, for us. He triumphed. He defeated the beast on the cross. And the debt of our sin was laid on his shoulders. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The son of man triumphed. Mark 13 verse 26, he's talking to his disciples and he says, the son of man will come on the clouds of heaven. Mark chapter 14, verse 62, Jesus is on trial. He's before the chief priest, and he says to the chief priest, the Son of Man will come on the clouds of heaven, and he will reign. And the chief priest is appalled because he knows what he's saying. Jesus applies this title, Son of Man, to himself more than any other, 84 times in the Gospels. 84 times Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. This Old Testament text, Daniel 7, 13, and 14, the most quoted in the whole New Testament. When Jesus returns on the clouds of heaven, he will come to judge and rule the nations. He will be exalted. And those of us who have entrusted ourselves to him, those of us that have accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we will reign with him forever. How do we know that? Daniel chapter 7, verse 18. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. And just in case we didn't get the point, verse 27, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. And in case we didn't get it, Jesus repeats it in the Gospels. And it's said again in the book of Revelation. Fifth point, in the midst of Babylon's darkness, God's people know that the redeemed people of God from all nations and languages will reign forever with the Son of Man. Amen? Amen. The redeemed people of God from all nations and languages will reign forever with the Son of Man. And so, No matter what we face in this life, whether death or life, angels or monsters, demons or dictators, no matter what the level of suffering or persecution, if God is our judge and Jesus our Savior, we have nothing to fear in this life or the next. Amen? The Jesus who calmed the Sea of Galilee will slay the ocean's beasts. The accurate prediction of the past fills us with hope. And a certainty that God will accomplish his purposes. God is in control. Our marching orders don't come from the beasts of this earth. Our marching orders come from the throne room of God. And so in the midst of Babylon's darkness, the redeemed people of God live in light of what they know. What they know to be true. And what do we know? We know that the beast exists. We know that the kingdoms of man in their lust for power and dominance, openly defy God, oppress His people all over the globe and challenge His created order. But we also know that the eternal God, out of His wisdom, holiness, and power, will judge the kingdoms of man. We also know that the kingdoms of man, no matter how horrific in their season of power, are only for a time. And we know that the Son of Man will come on the clouds of heaven. And that his kingdom will never end. And we know that we as the redeemed people of God from all nations, peoples, and languages will reign forever with the Son of Man. Amen? Amen. So how much more does God need to reveal to us in order for us to be faithful today? As we live in Babylon today, the Babylon of our day, as we enter our week, how much more does the Lord need to reveal us in order for us to live with hope, in order for us to remain faithful, in order for us to be courageous, in order for us to stand up for Jesus just as Daniel stood up in Babylon? Do we have enough to remain undaunted? We need nothing more. Let's stand to pray. so father we thank you we thank you again for the vision that you entrusted to Daniel thank you for the example of Daniel and oh God just as Daniel stood in Babylon may we stand in our day may we remain undaunted because you Lord have your hand over us and over all of history and nothing can separate us from your love we rest in your goodness and your sovereign care We thank you that you are faithful, that your love is steadfast, that you abide within us by your spirit, and that you will never leave us. Thank you that we can enter this week full of faith. May we live out of your presence, Lord. May we keep our eyes focused on you and not on the beast. May we live with our eyes focused on you, Jesus, and lay aside every sin that might entangle us for the joy set before us. May we run the race. Thank you, Jesus, that you reign, that you are seated at the right hand of the Father. Thank you for paying the price for our sin. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for sending your spirit to live within us, to empower us, to equip us, to lead us. Thank you, Jesus. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.